Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 35. So, you built a web application in Python. Now, how are you going to authorize users? Security goes beyond authentication. It gets into who gets to do what, where, and when. This week on the show, we have Sam Scott, Chief Technology Officer from Oso. Oso is an open source policy engine for authorization that you embed in your Python application. Sam talks about the typical security and authorization challenges developers face. He discusses building an engine on top of your existing Flask or Django app. And he covers the concepts of policies, business logic, and some common paradigms. This episode is brought to you by the Tech Meme Ride Home Podcast, Silicon Valley's favorite daily podcast. Okay, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. To get a little background on Oso and your project, can you just tell us a, a little bit about what, what your project's doing and kind of the origins of it a little bit? Yeah, so I guess I, I can I can kind of talk a little bit about where I how I started this out and where I came from. Yeah, sure. So prior to this, I was I was doing a PhD in cryptography. We actually used a, a fair bit of Python through Sage, you know, early on, doing a bunch of kind of fun elliptic curve things using Sage. So that was really nice. And I, I was kind of having a lot of fun there, and I, I kind of came out of came out of that PhD like looking to looking kind of do something more practical in in the in the real world. And the the kind of interesting thing I saw was that there were all these you know, problems out there in the real world that, like, from the academic view, are like these like solved problems. I was like, wait, why are people? You know, this is these are solved problems. Why are people still struggling with them? And, and it's it's kind of because the view I saw was just like that the tooling out there was like so impossibly hard for everyone to use that like you had to have a PhD in cryptography to be able to work out what to do. <laughs> sure. And so, so this was like almost three years ago. Now I was kind of like coming out and sort of going out, speaking to a bunch of people, like understanding the space better. So, sort of six months into that, I met up with my uh, now co-founder, Graham. And he was coming from this like developer background. He was previously at MongoDB. And we just had this like incredible conversation over coffee about the state of the world of like security for developers. So this is, you know, over two years ago now, we just clicked on this idea that like security shouldn't be so hard for developers. Yeah. And that's basically, you know, that's basically what we're out to do. That's like the very high level of like what Oso is all about is, um, you know, putting, the, putting security into the hands of developers. Cool. So... Just to take you back a little bit, I'm not that familiar with Sage. Can you tell me a little bit of what that was? Yeah, so Sage is this maths package built entirely on top of Python with like a few. Uh, I actually don't know. I don't know exactly the internals of it, but there's it has like a Python like REPL, for example. But some of the syntax is like overloaded, so you can do things like you know math operations like exponentiation easier. But it's you know very much like using Python to do maths. You know, you can like add and multiply matrices together using the syntax you expect in Python. It's just, it's just a very deep open source okay. maths package. It was actually, it was actually my, my entry point into open source. I, I, I dug up from like nine, 10 years ago. It was my first open source contribution was this little piece of functionality in Sage Math. Oh, cool. And so it's super popular for cryptography and all those types of things where 
you need those higher order levels of math. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 got it's got very very strong sort of number theory things in there, and um, I think just a, a few mathematicians kind of really picked up on it. Um, there's a guy Martin Albrecht is one who got got me into it early on, who has done a ton of incredible stuff around like lattice based cryptography, which is now there's, there's a there's a huge uh, push behind this, and there's like a NIST process towards the like post quantum cryptography, and a lot of the analysis there has been done using Sage Maths. So that's a that's a pretty exciting area. What's post content cryptography? <laughs> post quantum cryptography. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> so post quantum cryptography is basically how how do we do crypt, how do we do cryptography in a world where quantum computers exist? Oh, okay. That's the next the next fear a lot of people have, right? It's the next fear a lot of people have, and the you know there's a US, US governmental you know, department called NIST which runs like a lot of the you know, cryptography standards, and they have this really interesting perspective, which is you know if if there is stuff that you're using today, which is using like classical cryptography, if there's a quantum computer in say 50 years, then like data encrypted today is not safe. Right. So they have that really like long view of things, right? Like if you, you know, if you want your health records encrypted today to be safe in 50 years, then maybe you need to start considering these things. So they're currently running a process to like transstandardize on algorithms to do that like next generation cryptography. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, what were some of the first steps you guys made in uh, getting Oso started? Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing we did is just went out and spoke to as many developers and security teams as possible and really just were open to, like, hearing about the things they were struggling with. A lot of where we started out was around, like, how people uh, think about managing secrets. I think that was very, very appealing to me from that cryptography background. It's like, okay, encryption is one thing and, you know, post-quantum and all this stuff, but, like, what do you do with the key? Like, where do you put that stuff? And, you know, there's a you know, a bunch of products out there that help you manage those. But that's like, you know, to this day, I think something very painful for people. And so we kind of like, you know, we spoke to people, we heard about the struggles they had with doing things like, things like encryption, but also, you know, authentication, authorization, stuff like auditing. And the one that kind of kept up time and time again was that, you know, people have been reinventing from scratch pretty much every, you know, consistently we've seen people building from scratch their own authorization and permission systems. Yeah. So that's kind of where we, where we landed. In that sort of stack of things that you were just mentioning there, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, you know, there's authentication and then you're diving into this other layer of authorization then. And that's the focus you're talking about to take a step back. Like what types of authorization work with Oso? So absolutely any. So yeah, I mean, I can I can give a little little overview as well on those kind of pieces, right? So yeah, there's kind of the the classic paradigm, right? Is you know authentication is all about you know who you are. So I don't know. You think about using something like GitHub, right? You go and you enter your username and password. You maybe do some two factor authentication or something. You know that is proving who you are to GitHub. They're like, okay, cool. You are now. I know you. You're Sam Scott eighty nine. Authenticated tick. So authorization would be like the next piece of that. It's like, okay, cool. Now I know who you are. Like, what can you do? You know, can you see this repository? Are you allowed to like push to it? Can you open a pull request? Like, are you, you know, are you in this organization in this repository? Like, all that kind of information is like, okay, I know who you are, but what can you do in the app? And so that's yeah, so that's the area that we really focus on is that is that latter piece. Yeah. Okay. And so the goal here is to alleviate using like a tool like Flask or Django to completely roll your own set of authorization levels and terms, right? Yeah, that's right. So the, I mean, the interesting thing is like, so you asked, and you asked earlier, right? You know, what kinds of, you know, what kinds of authorization can you represent in something like Oso? And there's kind of like two, two kind of main main types of authorization people normally think about. There's roles and like role-based access control. You know, the idea there being you sort of group both users and permissions into some kind of 
simple, easy to understand notion of like what someone can do. You know, like you're the owner of a repository. That means you can do a certain set of actions. And I, I don't need to list, I don't need to tell you specifically the hundred different things you can do. I just, you, you kind of have a sense of what that should mean. And maybe a collaborator has, you know, some other kind of set of meanings. Right. And so that's kind of like one sense. And then there's this idea of like attribute-based access control, which is like, you know, maybe it's, you know, if the repository is public, anyone can see it. If it's private, then you're, you know, depending on something else. Those are kind of like the two main paradigms. But, you know, in reality, no implementation is ever that simple. There's always like these kind of weird edge cases where it's like, you know, yeah, so you have, you know, repository roles, but you also have, you know, third-party plugins that need to be able to do stuff across like multiple repositories. And they're not really a collaborator. They're just like some additional functionality and they have different permissions. And so, you know, basically what we've seen in the past is, you know, people often will start out in something like Django or Flask with maybe some basic roles and they'll build it in one way. And over time, their their app will kind of change and adapt and they need to support new things and stuff they hadn't predicted. And kind of very quickly, it stops being a model and just starts being a kind of a mess. <laughs> so going back a little bit, you're saying that a typical setup, I, I'm used to the idea of the roles, like kind of coming from a user perspective. Yeah. Maybe from a Django CMS kind of engine type of thing. But attributes would be more based upon kind of looking kind of from a different direction. Yeah, kind of. And, you know, I think often it comes down to not just like the the role, you know, it's like your relationship to the data. Okay. So, you know, one one thing that maybe comes up often is, uh, you know, in, in the context, you know, maybe like creating issues. It's like, you know, a, an admin or repository can can uh, delete any issue they want, but users can only delete their own issues. And so there's kind of something a little bit deeper going on there. It's like, you, know, you need to have some kind of concept of like, this is my issue, I can delete it. It's, it's not about if I'm a collaborator or not. It's like, no, but, you know, I was the creator of that issue. <laughs> Right. It's mine. <laughs> right. Does that does that make sense? <laughs> okay. So through that, you guys have developed what you guys are calling a policy engine. Is that a, a new term? It's, no, it's, it's, not, it's not entirely a new term, but I think it's, uh, it's kind of a relatively newer way of thinking about doing authorization in, a, in an app. Okay. The idea of the policy engine really comes down to, you know, two pieces. So... On one hand, there's the the policy itself, which is you know, representing all the authorization logic we were just kind of speaking about, right? So, you know, the idea that you know a you know users can push to repositories they're a collaborator of, like you might you might try and represent that logic in your policy in a decorative way. So it's like a series of rules. The idea of the policy engine piece of this is it kind of reads in all those policies. It will like store them internally inside like what's called a knowledge base, and you can then make queries against it. So you can ask questions of it, you know, like what can this user do? Can they push this specific repository? And the, you know, the job of the policy engine is like taking that and based on everything it knows, you know, deciding you know yes or no, or you know, potentially even other things. Okay, and the policy engine in this case is written in a kind of a separate language, right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, basically, when, when we when we started building this, we wanted to build something that could be used consistently across like any language. Right. And so, you know, yeah. So Python is one of the languages we support. We also support, you know, Ruby, Java, Node, and and Rust. And basically, the last one on on that sort of list, which kind of stands out, is Rust. And that's because you know the core of this is written in Rust. We 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 built this this entire language and the the policy engine. That's all built in Rust, and then exposed to those other languages through. You know, in some cases, it's like a C-style interface, and in the case of Node, it's uh, actually in Wasm. Okay. I, I spoke to Russell Keith McGee, a guy who created Beware, about that for a little bit. And he'd used that acronym before, too, so that's the WebAssembly, is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
it's not like somebody needs to go in and program that themselves in Rust. That what they'll be doing is kind of creating descriptive elements inside of the the policy, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, for for a user, the interface is is basically two things. It's you you write your policies in the language called Polar, and then you use whatever your like language library is. You know, it's pip install oso, and you can then do like oso load policies, or okay. and then query away. And they're saved in a like if you were working inside of Django, you'd it'd be saved away in a separate directory. Yeah, exactly. So in the case of policy files, we you know the way you should think of them is like like code, right? So they um, in the case of Django, for example, the the OSO Django integration will expect them to live in a policy folder, and it will like load them from there. So you know it does all the things you expect Django to. You know, in the same way that like fixtures would be loaded in, or templates would be loaded in, it'll it'll load them in on startup. It will you know reload the Django app if they change into bug mode, things like that. Okay, one of the things that I was wondering about use this term of uh, you know not confusing authorization code with business logic. Yeah, can you give an ex- explanation a little bit of like what is considered business logic? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's not always very clear cut. It's <laughs> one thing. So, like, I think for me, like, one one sign that you've done like authorization really well is if like the user doesn't even know it's there. Like, if it's not something the user ever sees, you've probably done it well because then it means that they are happily using your app without needing to think about <laughs> right. this. Right? They're not banging against it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. In some cases, though, like the lines do get blurred. So, I know coming back to like the you know the GitHub example, for example. You log into your profile page and maybe it shows all the repositories you're like a contributor to. In some senses, you know, that's all the repositories you're like authorized to view, or is that fundamental business logic? Would be another example of uh, layers of business logic, like in a different type of app. Other types of sorry, what do you what do you mean by that? Well, like you mentioned briefly healthcare. Yeah. What would be like examples of business logic there? Yeah. So I mean in in yeah, in healthcare. So imagine in a uh, you know, in a hospital using a piece of software receptionists are entering, you know, creating new appointments for, for uh, patients, you know, doctors are entering stuff they stuff they know about the patient, you know, managing patient records, you know, updating them after they've had, uh, you know, tests done, things like that. It's so like, you know, in that sense, like entering all the information and viewing the information, that's all like core business logic. Where the authorization would come into that is, you know, maybe only your primary care physician is allowed to see your data, not just anybody at the hospital who's me- who can use the software. Right. They might be able to send out forms, but they're not able to like access them after it or whatever. you. Exactly. Okay. How does it sometimes get tangled up then between authorization code and business logic? Well, so a lot of the time these things are like, they are like very related, especially like around the data they, they're kind of part of, you know, so, you know, again, like, you know, adding somebody, adding somebody as a collaborator to your repository is like, feels to me very much like the core part of GitHub or. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, it's, it's sort of authorization logic is like, is then based on that data. So like the data has been entered as a core part of the business logic, but then authorization is often, authorization decisions are often made based on the like business logic or the you know, data that's been entered via the business logic. What are ways that you can separate them more? So, and that's kind of the idea of, of where like OSO and the sort of policy engine comes in. Um, and this was something that, you know, when we first started building it, we we kind of, was like one of our core design principles is I think it all, it all revolves around the, the data piece. So, you know, the, the data existing in the application of like, you know, a user is a member of a repository or the creator of this repository, they're an organization, that'll like, that'll can stay as part of the app. 
in the business logic, in the the way the application's built. So like in in that example, you'd be building that inside of Django itself and Exactly. They they are just your, your standard Django models. You have your user model, you have your repository model, the data is all just managed through Django, you build views and forms on top of that. Yeah. You can almost pretend the authorization doesn't exist. Okay. Done done well, the authorization then just becomes this like purely additional piece on top of it where it can sort of take in all that information and make decisions based on it. And then you sort of can inject it in the right places. You know, ideally it's something like a middleware. And so that's kind of what we try to do it with Oso, basically. It's like you can, in, you know, in, again, in the case of Django, you can add it as a middleware. You can, you know, there's like a, a single authorized method you can call. That's just going to basically push the decision making to the, to the policy engine and the, and the policy logic. The, the policy itself, you can write over those Django models, like over your application data itself. Like it, you can read attributes, you can call methods, you can type check based on the models. So like all of that like information that you know is expressed through how you've designed your like models and schemas and all that, that gets to stay where it is. But you then get to make those decisions based on it. When the New Yorker magazine asked Mark Zuckerberg how he gets his news, He said the one news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. Every day by 5 p.m., the TechMeme Ride Home has all the tech news you need. Listen to the one podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every single day. Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the TechMeme Ride Home podcast. You mentioned that you can just simply pip install it. Yep. So the the software as it sits is, is open source and... Uh, people can use it without any, you know, you don't have to pay any fees or anything. I have to check it out and hopefully help them add more security and <laughs> to their <laughs> applications, right? Yeah, that's right. It's fully, fully, fully open source. Everything, everything you can find in the repository. We have a, um, we have a little sort of growing community of of people kind of involved in Oso, and actually, kind of just earlier today, having a really good conversation around the Django uh, integration itself, talking about how to like make it more kind of more idiomatic in the in kind of in the Django framework itself and how it works with kind of existing pieces Django has. What was the word you use there? Did you say idiomatic or automatic? Yeah, idiomatic, yeah. Okay, um, what do you mean by that? For example, so Django does have like a few of this these kind of pieces in like built into the framework and it's kind of as a sort of as a scaffolding for permissions. Right. So for example, there is like a kind of a, a common, uh, common method built into uh, sort of the Django auth model, which is around asking uh, whether a user has a particular permission. There's this like has per method you can you can use. Okay. And if you if you implement that basically then other things, other Django things built on top of it can use it. And so we one of some of the feedback we got earlier today was like, well if we provided out of the box like OSO implementing that. So the has perm would be implemented by through OSO, through the policy engine. Um, you know, then it kind of just fits into this Django ecosystem without having, you know, people who are already using building apps on Django on top of that can potentially just like plug in Oso and there's no more work for them to do. So what are some issues that you have with with, with supporting multiple platforms? Because you, you have, <laughs> you know, we mentioned Django multiple times here, but, uh, you know, like another popular platform would be Flask. Yeah, so we, yeah, so currently we have uh, Django and Flask integrations. The, yeah, the, I mean, the challenge is there is kind of, um, you know, there's, there's a long tail of stuff we could potentially do in, in every every language as well as every framework to sort of, you know, make that experience better and better and better. You know, the idea is in a lot of these cases, we are reaping the benefits of having this like single policy underneath the surface. So like 
you know, once we add a new language, the library on top of the language is, is kind of thin and like the framework doesn't need to be too much. But it was definitely challenging. Uh, I mean, one of the challenges is, is just the the kind of platform and the language support. You know, between the two, we have, you know, something like a couple of hundred CI jobs that run every time we do a release to check every Python version against every operating system and things like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's been fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like in, you know, in Python specifically, the you know, the, we, the process we go through is we, you know, compile the, the Rust core down to a dynamic library that gets like embedded into a, a Python wheel. And there's some, there's some nice tools around Python to do this like many Linux approach. So you can provide these pre-built Python wheels for, for different versions, but yeah, the, a lot of different, um, a lot of different versions to test out. Yeah. We've been doing a deep dive over the last, I don't know, a couple of months talking about packaging and the idea of like, you know, getting your your code ready for that kind of circumstances, so you guys are dealing, you know, <laughs> right yeah. on the front lines of that stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I, the support for you know all the different flavors of Linux and stuff, I, I think, could be pretty interesting because it's not a pure Python package. Exactly, but we want people to have that experience. Though we want them to pip install it and, and be done, and not to have to think about compiling a, a Rust thing as part of it, for example. Right. Okay. What are common security concerns that developers have yeah it's a great question a lot <laughs> <laughs> well it's been a common question to me you know it's like can you bring people on about security i'm like okay <laughs> and they never yeah. really quite say exactly what concerns they have i have overarching ones myself but you know but i'm wondering like what are the types of things that you guys hear yeah i mean frankly it is it's an overwhelming number it's i mean so there's there i think there's like a ton of things which just around security of you know, once your app is like running in production, I, I kind of mentioned you're know, managing secret keys earlier. You'll kind of need this pretty early on once you're like deploying, trying to deploy apps into production. But from like an application developer perspective, uh, you know, the kinds of things, uh, a lot of it basically comes down to having this mindset of like, what is the worst, what, you know, what could a user, what could someone do who wants to use my app maliciously? What could they do inside the app? Okay. So, you know, SQL injection is this like really common one that comes up time and time again, where you have some piece of user input, and if you don't, you know, construct your query correctly, or if you don't sanitize that input, people can end up maybe making arbitrary SQL requests to your backend, which could mean, you know, exposing data, it could mean dropping tables or things like that. Right. Um, and there's that XKCD comment, right? Yeah, good old Bobby, Bobby tables. tables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Okay. And so this this number for authorization, it's like you know authorization is um, you know maybe if, if everyone behaves and used your web app like you expected to, maybe this wouldn't be a problem. But you know if you're not careful, maybe the web app is making requests to the back end, and if you haven't done authorization on some of those pieces, you know someone can you know they can observe what your web browser is doing, and maybe they can manipulate those things. Oh look, it's asking for you know repository one two three. What if I change that to two three four? Oh, it still works. Cool, I can get all that data. Yeah, to do like kind of a like just an attack just by looking at the the way the the structure is written. Exactly, exactly. You can like see see what the see what the web app's asking for and see if you can work around it. And because it, it can be, you know, as I said, it can be tough. Like if you feel like you've coded it, you know, in a in a functional way. Like I want I want my users to use the app in some way. They need to have access to the, to the data they need. But you know, you need to be very careful of making sure you're checking all the right inputs. You're cor- you know correlating these things. Like you know, does this user is they, are they really allowed to do this thing? Like it might not be possible for that to happen in a normal usage of the app, but what about an you know irregular usage of the app? Okay, are, are there um, a set of tools that 
you would suggest somebody use to test or harden their their app? Uh, for yeah, I mean, so it, it, there are some really good. There are some generally really good security tools out there for some set of problems. I have to say, I've been I've I've been playing around with uh, Sneak a bit recently. Uh, Snyk. Okay, that's the one I keep hearing. Yeah, yeah. For for doing like the you know checking your dependencies and vulnerabilities and that. That's I think that's a huge piece. Because that's even worse. That's not even your code. That's someone else's code has <laughs> has got a problem, and now you're vulnerable. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think for for authorization specifically, it's sadly an area which I don't think has seen as much love, which is kind of kind of why we exist, right? But okay, today the best practices for that is do as much testing as possible, manual security audits. You know, people manually coming through a code base trying to see if there's somewhere that they haven't added authorization. So that's that's kind of the state of things, which is you know obviously one of the things we're trying to solve with with OSO is is making that easier. And in some ways, having it as a, a separate policy engine, this separate piece of software, is that in some way making it more secure? Yeah, well, so it's it's kind of two pieces. The you know so the library, the library itself, like you know again like the Django, the Flask one, you can you can use it to make sure that you know every request is authorized in some way. So you could you can you could, you can have that designed by default. You can make sure that everything has authorization, and that's very noticeable because like you use the app and it'll be, you know, broken. Right. And then and the kind of the nice thing about having the like authorization logic written in that policy is it just gives you that like one place to to check to look to see what's been implemented. It's not a case of like hunting hunting through the code base as I said, checking every every view every route to make sure that authorization's been applied. It's Deny it by default, and then look at the policy to understand what you know what the logic is. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, kind of coming from the other side, what are security concerns that the users have? Kind of uh, you know trying mm. to, to use these types of things. So, I mean, I think nobody wants to get their data stolen, <laughs> <laughs> right? Which is obviously a kind of a sadly common common thing these days. Which isn't, isn't always about authorization, right? But you know, but that that can definitely be one area that comes up. So, no no one's happy when there is a security breach of some form. But I think, again, coming back to something I said earlier, the you know users don't want to have to spend a ton of time like understanding your internal permissions, structures, just they can use your app. You know, this is, this is when you often get to the, you know, there's you know, like 20 different roles to choose from. There's like a giant 20 by 20 matrix of permissions, you know, sort of hunting through, like trying to understand, well, you know, do I, I need this set? Maybe not this set. Like, you know, I think that, that often gets um, very common in some of these kind of like larger you know, B2B or enterprise apps that do have a lot of complexity. And unfortunately, a lot of a lot of places find it hard to get that right and end up just kind of pushing that work back to the users. And Right. So then they have to have like a whole like instruction <laughs> yep. session with people to get them onboarded or what have you. Yep. And that's where <laughs> we've heard many stories of people having, you know, like an Excel spreadsheet, for example, to try and track who has access to what and, and oh, all these boy. kind of things. And, <laughs> you know, that, the kind of thing that, you know, five seconds after you wrote is out of date. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and things like that. Yeah. Okay. What are some of the worst security issues you've found in a Python app? Yeah. Uh, so I think I may have mentioned one that last time we spoke, which was, which maybe isn't the worst in the grand scheme of things, but uh, I think is definitely uh, interesting, which was that there, someone had managed to miss. They 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 had managed to miss doing authorization on one of the endpoints, which was the endpoint to delete a user account. And oh boy, <laughs> yeah, it, it meant that users could just delete other people's bank accounts. <laughs> of 
gosh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's easily done though. It's 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 interesting though. I I I had a a founder of a of a company kind of confide in me once saying, you know, that they had they had a pretty they'd had a, re, a pretty terrible security issue and I, I can't really go into the details of it, but apparently after they had this massive security issue, they started getting a lot more interest from companies who are like Welcome to the club. <laughs> sort of everyone's everyone's had one. Like, you know, you sort of now you've now you've cut your teeth in the real world. We can we can trust to make sure you'll take security seriously now. Yeah, I would I guess, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I keep seeing these goofy Twitter things lately, like, is coffee not a w- enough to wake you up? <laughs> you know, and they're like, Okay, delete a table in production <laughs> you know, or some kind of ridiculous oh, thing, yeah. you know. You know, it's like, all right, yeah. now you're awake. Yeah. <laughs> Email all our customers because we've released their data. Yeah, that sounds like a good one. <laughs> right. Kind of going back to that idea of endpoints, is there a way that you can audit all your endpoints? Not not without extensive testing currently. Okay. I mean, there are, there are apps that will do sort of, they can do some sort of vulnerability testing in sort of check, checking for, for like kind of the more like the SQL injection style things or uh, checking the, you know, the kinds of inputs that it accepts. Yeah. But yeah, right right now it's it's very much a sort of manual approach. It's kind of the best people know. Yeah, I've I've used some um different like form software things that mm. help with the whole sanitizing thing, then try to help with you know checking <laughs> to make sure they're not they're not entering arbitrary code versus, you know, actual like user input that you were you're looking for. Yeah. I think the the challenging thing is it's you know, implementing the Implementing the test for those is almost as, as as much work as like writing the policy itself. It's like you're kind of re to know what to test for. You're basically having to take that take that whole policy and like rewrite it as a as a test suite. It's you know everybody might, for example, have everyone can everyone can see the homepage, but the data that's displayed on that is like the where the policy maybe comes into it. It's, it can be hard to say. All right, so yes, this has we check. You know, we authorize they're allowed to view the page, but like what about the data that's on the page and, and so on. Hmm. But we um we have some interesting ideas on 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 how we could do this better. Actually, we were just talking about earlier today. Should be excited to show show sometime soon, hopefully. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It's titled "Exploring HTTPS and Cryptography in Python." The course is based on a real Python article by Logan Jones. The instructor for the course is previous podcast guest Christopher Trudeau. And he takes you through the various factors that combine to keep communications over the internet safe. You'll see concrete examples of how a Python HTTPS application keeps information secure. In the course, you learn how to monitor and analyze network traffic, apply cryptography to keep data safe, describe the core concepts of public key infrastructure, or PKI, create your own certificate authority, build a Python HTTPS application, and identify common Python HTTPS warnings and errors. I think learning the fundamentals of HTTPS and cryptography in Python is a crucial skill for anyone interested in building applications for the web. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and has code samples for the techniques shown. It also includes a shiny new transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. What are common other like gotchas that happen in in developing these kinds of applications around authorization? So where where things can get really tricky is there's a, there's there's often a 
there's a time in the life of a B2B company where they end up needing to support some kind of custom roles. It's kind of happens happens to any any B2B company that hits a certain size. It's like, all right, we have some large large customer who really, really wants to have fine grain control inside our app. So mm-hmm. we should let them create their own roles and assign permissions. And what can happen there is that in, inevitably the customer will come up with some some set of permissions that makes sense to them, but just completely breaks your application. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, you should be able to, you know, view repositories, but not see any of the contents of them. And suddenly you're like, but what's the point of that? And you're like, well, I don't know. We, <laughs> we want someone to be able to read the names, but not the, the code. And, and now, now you're in a situation where your app is just like, I don't know how to handle this. Yeah. They've created some kind of junior administrator kind of role or something that. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. So that, um, and and that's where people often just like start just like adding in all these like exception cases like, okay, but in, you know, in this particular mode, uh, let's just like, let's just get rid of all, let's like do something custom. Is it literally like walking down like a if then kind of or if else kind of statement? Ex- okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Actually, on, on that, yeah, on that topic, I think uh, the idea of having like a, a God user or a super user or something like that is, you know, a very common pattern. You know the, the the idea that you just you know every now and then maybe you need someone like a you know support support engineer or like a developer who's debugging something to be able to go in and just sort of like say I, I just kind of need full power because I need to go and make sure everything is is working like it is and that you know there's there's often like a very you know maybe it's like a simple as you say like if st- statement early on but later on you you kind of realize that that's um, not ideal to be able to give people that much power and you sort of have to then kind of backtrack a little bit and rein it in and maybe like have some checks in place like. Why are they doing these things? And I guess if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with the kind of the incident that like Twitter had recently, which was that you know internal user credentials could do <laughs> quite a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of a little shocking to lots yeah. of people. <laughs> but like Twitter has a fantastic engineering team, right? Like that's not a. I'm sure that's not you know based on anyone's like lack of engineering experience or prowess. It's just a. It, these are these are decisions that you can make early on that can often be super super hard to get away from if you if you don't do it right. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of on that theme, like what are what are other ways that authorization gets kind of tied up in knots and complicated? Yeah. So the I don't know, don't know if you can think of another um, type of uh, application system. You know. Yeah. So I'm 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 thinking of one. So there's the yeah. So okay. So the you know the idea of having like the authorization logic you know separated from the you know the, the application code the business logic like isn't a new one and so like there are like other people who have gone down this path of you know maybe adding like uh, something like a Python decorator for to all your methods or routes that like you know maybe will list like the roles the role you need to be able to call this method or something like that that can be sort of nice but then like you you know we've we've seen companies who you know multiple years down the line have you know, 3,000 of these methods with just like all of these decorators spread throughout. And that can be, it can be super hard to move away from that. And the, the problem is like, as I kind of said, you know, maybe earlier, like just using roles isn't enough. So you end up with, it's like, you know, take take the you know example I gave earlier, which is like, you can you know, delete your own comments, but if you're a user of admins can delete anyone's comments. If you, if all you have is roles, the way you might solve that is having two different endpoints, like delete delete own comment or delete other users' comment, and you're going to assign roles to those two things. And so that's kind of one of the ways that, like, if you start out with roles, you're going to end up starting doing sort of 
slightly unnatural things in your application to kind of work around that limitation. And once you've gone down that route and you have like 3,000 of these things, it can be super hard to justify doing some sort of refactor to try and like pull all that out and, and rewrite it. Have you been in a situation where you've had to do that? <laughs> we have, yeah, we, we were in a conversation with a, with a company who was, who was looking down, down that kind of process. And you just look at the code and you, <laughs> and, you know, your eyes glaze over as far as like, how am I going to un- unwind this? Yeah. So, so one, in one of these cases, it was, so it wasn't quite, it wasn't, uh, there's, there's a different example I'm thinking of now, which is where that, that same logic was expressed through multiple, uh, like CSV files. Okay. And so it was all very, it was all like very, these like long thousand, long thousand line CSV files and, um, some XML things as well. So that had to be read in at the time to to sort of calculate what things are what. Yeah, exactly. And so that was kind of like one of the the fun things we helped them out with was um, slurping up all those CSVs and and trying to convert them into some somewhat nicer policies they could they could use instead. That was actually kind of a nice one because it you know it was already data driven, so they actually had a reasonable as a reasonable path to move from that to policies. But if you have the equivalent, but in code, you know it's as far as I'm aware, there's not like a, a, a sort of batch Python refactoring tool that you could use to do something similar. Yeah. We, we spoke a little bit about the development process. I guess maybe um, if you want to dive a little deeper into it, like what what are you guys working on currently? And, and I, I know you guys have a little bit about the website. We could talk about the blog and some of the other resources you guys provide also. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a... One of the things we're most excited about at the moment, we we wrote a blog post on recently, is is this idea of uh, which we're kind of calling list filtering. And so, what this looks like in the case of like the Django application, uh, Django integration specifically, is this idea that you can write your you write your policies, you write your polar policies, and you kind of express the logic you want for authorization. And the OSA policy engine will convert those, like on making a so like on, on querying that policy, instead of just making a yes or no decision, it'll actually output a set of uh, like Django RM filters for the database. So that if you have, for example, like you know, millions of entries in your database and you want to like say, give me all the give me all of the rows that this user can see, your logic still stays in, in that policy, but it gets like kind of compiled down to a query and done like super efficiently in the in the database. So this has been a big feature we've been working on recently that we wrote up in a in a blog post for how that looks like in, in Django. So that's all kind of, it all pops out just as like part of an ORM statement that you can then add the things that you need to it for logic? Yeah, so in, yeah, exactly. So in the case of, so in the Django integration, you basically just, is, is like as works as like a, as like a, a records manager thing. So you can say like, you know, repositories, the objects, the authorized, and it will just return you just the query set of the ones you're authorized to read. Okay. And so that's been, so that's really fun because it's, so like this, the, you know, the main development for this has all been done at the Rust level. You know, we're making these improvements to the language itself to allow it to sort of output a set of constraints instead of just a yes/no decision. You can say like, what what repositories can I access? And I'll say, well, repositories where you are the owner or you have this role or so on, so on, so on. And so, like, we you know modify that internal policy engine to return you know something different to yes/no to these constraints, and you can use that for like other things like this list filtering problem. But you can do this across like all languages. Is the, is the nice thing. We didn't speak about it much, but what does writing in Polar look like? It's kind of like writing Python, but a little bit different. 
<laughs> okay. So the language polar itself is based on Prolog. It's like this uh, classical uh, logic programming language. And so it is a, you know, it's a decorative, it's a logical programming language. So you write, you know, you, instead of writing the code like imperatively, you kind of write the end state, you know, the idea of it being like decorative or logical. You kind of write what you expect to be the end output. So you just, you say, you know, uh, I want to allow a user to read a repository. That would be like the, the top of the rule. It kind of looks like the method. And you say if, maybe it's if user.id equals repository.ownerid. Okay. And so you kind of just write that statement. And the syntax for this looks, this is the bit where it kind of looks like Python. You know, the, the syntax looks sort of similar to Python. You can do user.id to look at an attribute. You, you can, you know, if you need to have multiple of these, you can do X and Y or Z, and it's spelled out like Python. Um, you can call methods, stuff like that. So it's got like a, a dot notation syntax somewhat. Exactly. And, you know, the 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 rule, which kind of looks like a method, you know, you can has like type parameters, which kind of look like Python type parameters. The only difference is you don't, you don't express like how, you don't need to express how like OSO needs to go through that information. You just kind of write down everything you want, all the rules, you put them all down and the idea is that the also the policy engine is the one that searches through that rules, like combines them together, works out is this true? If so, I'll move on to the next thing. So you you don't write down the control flow. That's all done through the policy engine. Yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> Save you a lot of effort on on that. Yeah, it's 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 definitely like a new paradigm. You know, we've we've it it takes a little bit for the sort of everything to just kind of click into place because it's a bit different to what people are used to, but. Uh, what we've kind of heard time and time again is, you know, maybe after like using it for maybe an hour or two, you have this moment where you're just like, oh, right, I get it. And, you know, all the things that you were, you know, the reason there's no like if else statements because like, you know, that's, you know, it's written this way and it's all like flat. I don't have these like nested statements because and it's kind of like this moment where you see people like, oh, I don't need to like tell it how it just. Are there like paradigms that people use for certain types of authorization structures like i can think of like a you know as me thinking you know in in sql and and tables and the whole idea of like database architecture but i I feel like authorization kind of has kind of a similar idea of like okay well you know what are ways that roles can be organized that you know somebody would think about in advance yeah so there's a there's a couple of there's a couple of like very common ones especially with roles so you might have role hierarchies so like you know, kind of like concentric circles of permissions almost, you know, like a, a guest can do one thing, a member can do everything a guest can do plus additional things, and an admin can do everything a user can do plus additional things. So like often you might have that kind of hierarchy, which, you know, in, in OSO, for example, you can you can write it that way so you don't need to like repeat yourself again and again. A similar one is like role inheritance. Okay. Uh, this one This one can be super, super powerful. So, well, First of all, the idea of like having roles associated to a particular resource. I've said this. I've said this a bunch without kind of explaining it right. But like an owner of a repository or a member of an organization, these are like roles associated with a particular thing, organization, repository, project, whatever it is. And so, role inheritance, which is like a super powerful piece, is to be able to say, if I am an owner, if I'm a member of an organization, I can be a member or a collaborator of any repository in that organization. Okay. And so this is the kind of thing that we like, we've got a bunch of examples on the website for, which is like, you can write 
exactly that in like two lines of polar code. Oh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I think about those kinds of things where like <laughs> having to restructure that, especially if you've done it already, like say in your Django code or whatever, could be part of the st- frustrations we've been speaking about already. But like just being able to sit down in advance and look at some models of <laughs> you know, examples, I think would help people a lot. Yeah. Yeah. We also, I mean, so we actually, we actually had the chance to do a little workshop with the Python Atlanta meetup folks like last week where we, we kind of went through some of this and actually some of the, we have some of the materials of that like available on our, on our GitHub as well. Cool. Which is, which is nice. It like walks you through navigating these concepts from a pure like Django perspective, you know, like what are Django groups and what does Django admin give you? And then like starting to bring in some of those like authorization concepts, like, okay, cool. Like what happens if we have, uh, you know, assign permissions to a group member? Like what does that look like from a you know, logic standpoint? Nice. Yeah. I know we kind of hit on the development process a little bit here and there. Yep. Do you want to go a little further into that too? Like there's some, yeah. So I touched on one of them briefly earlier, which is around being able to, you know, write, write some, you know, more concise tests around checking in whether you've you know done the right access controls in place one of the things we're looking at now actually is is providing a lot more uh sort of out of the box templates for some of the models we've spoken about like if you want to get started with roles in your app in you know under five minutes yeah we're kind of you know looking at providing code that people can basically drop into their django app and, and get running and then like over time if they want to do some of the stuff we spoke about today like they'll all be you know, compatible with those and they can just like build on top of that okay so just like another version of templating <laughs> yep yep okay it's just again it's just we find you know people uh, often people come and uh, come and ask us you know around like what is the right way to do how should they do authorization permissions in, the, in their app and i think it kind of speaks to that worry that you know what you build today is probably going to sit there for a good couple of years before you uh maybe get frustrated and try and rip out the whole thing so right we're really interested in, in setting people off on the right on the right path of that Actually, at this point, I will sort of, I could advertise as well that I actually hold weekly office hours on Thursdays if people like interested in talking about how they do authorization in their app. Whether it's OSA related or not, that's the kind of thing I'm always happy to, to talk to people about. Okay. I have a couple questions that I ask weekly, recurring questions. I know you work with a, a variety of languages, but it sounds like you, you've done quite a bit of work in Python. Mm-hmm. So what is something that you're excited about that's happening in the world of Python? So I am... I'm very excited about we're going to be at Python Universe in sort of a few weeks, probably on the 19th of November. Um, that one should be a lot of fun. There's a lot of really interesting talks there, actually. Yeah, this should be right before that. Yeah. And uh, there's some other interesting talks, actually, on authentication authorization there. Should be should be interesting. Cool. Oh, where does that take place? I mean, I'm guessing online, mostly, but... <laughs> Exa- yeah, exactly. It's going to be a global web summit. I think it's, it's cross time zones. They have, I think they've got they got slots to kind of cover the full 24 hours. That should be fun. Um, they got a couple of tracks. Um, is that an ongoing thing? I, I'm not familiar with it. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that, actually. I'm not sure. I, I, think, okay. I think it was a previous event, which they're doing a sort of global version of for these uh, interesting times. Yeah, I, I was talking to Al Swagger about this whole idea of virtual conferences and the idea of kind of developing a curriculum around them yeah you know like a way to structure them that you could watch them in an order across you know maybe multiple years of, and so forth and I, I could imagine this kind of you know like having multiple things about security kind of lining up would be useful <laughs> as a structure like okay well this is you know like some of the fundamentals and then these are the more advanced kind of concepts and yeah yeah so they've got like two tracks for example for like the beginner advanced which i think suits that well just yeah more more generally the 
I mean, I, we've, I've been really loving the, we've been able to go to like a ton of different Python meetups because so much of them turned online. I mentioned Python Atlanta. We did, you know, Python SF as well, like uh, about a month ago. Uh, it's been kind of fun to travel the, <laughs> travel the world of Python without leaving my apartment, <laughs> meeting a bunch of people all over. That's been, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's cool. So if somebody has a meetup group, you guys be interested in talking with them? Absolutely. Yeah. I think we're... Okay. Should be a DC Python coming up soon as well. Should be fun. All right. Great. Yeah. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. So other than that, stuff that I'm excited about in the in the Python ecosystem, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to see the, the kind of interoperability story through... I mean, I, I mentioned WebAssembly and, and WASM earlier. I, I think there's a really interesting story there, or just the kind of stuff we've been doing using like Rust and adding it's Python. I I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of like kind of cross language interop happening over the next few years. I you know I wouldn't be surprised to see um, you know people embedding you know pieces of Python into you know performance critical and the apps running in in Go or something. Microservice apps running in Go, but with like a little piece of Python in there for customization and. I think there's some really exciting stuff coming out that's just going to make yeah. you know, choosing a language less of a thing. It'll just be more like uh, everything kind of fits in together. Because you know, that has been a lot of fun for us is like building this pretty you know, deep you know, policy engine language thing in Rust, but working with it at the Python level I think has been a ton of fun. And so I'm, I'm excited to see more of that kind of thing come out. Yeah, I am too. That, I, I'm very interested in that. He was talking a lot about the WebAssembly, the idea of, you know, you know, the idea of behind beware is the idea of, you know, write it once and hopefully deploy it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and the web has always been one of those kind of question marks. I mean, obviously we've already been talking a lot about Flask and Django, but you know, the idea of having a graphical built-in interface and not having to, you know, create all those things yourself in multiple other languages would be uh, kind of neat and, and being able to build a, a framework around it. And the way you know, you guys are doing the same thing, the idea of like, we can attach these secure tools to your, you know, <laughs> your development platform of choice, you know, which is cool. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So what's something that you want to learn next? And that could be in Python or otherwise. Funnily enough, uh, fast API is something that's come up, I don't know, three or four times in like the last week for some reason. And obviously we're, you know, always interested in like looking at new places where it can be added. And I think they do, they do a fair amount of stuff with uh, types, which I'm, a big fan of so i think that that's one i might need to check out sooner rather than later yeah um, michael kennedy talked about that quite a bit on when he came on the show oh, nice. um, yeah. a month or so ago and uh it seems like <laughs> i keep hearing it again and again so. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i'll probably have to reach out to the people for face fast api and get them on to talk so <laughs> that sounds good let me know if you do oh yeah i will well i want to thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing oso with us thanks for having me this was a lot of fun Don't forget to subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. I want to thank Sam Scott for coming on the show. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.